0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, exiting Afghanistan. Hamilton author, artist, musician Tom Wilson joins us and talks life. Is the Prime Minister just looking for a fight in lieu of a wedge issue? And housing a top issue in this election? Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Got my backpack for school yesterday. These new models have a special place to stash your mass. Oh uh, wait, it's called a pocket. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's
0: Scott Thompson. He's got a shirt. Look at him—he's got a shirt on. Oh, but he's I walk, he walks away. He's got no pants. Oh, there you go. I, I know it couldn't be perfect. Uh good afternoon. It is 12:10, it is 900CHML. I'm Scott Thompson Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website at 900 All right, uh obviously we've watched the situation uh in Afghanistan appear to go from bad to worse and uh uh you know hearing of uh Canada has uh, pulled the troops out of Afghanistan, although they say there's some still there, but I'm not really sure what that all means. Uh, And now we're hearing uh, of explosions at the airport. To talk more about all of this, political reporter for Global News, Amanda Connolly, is with us. Amanda, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So what is the latest uh at uh the uh, the Kabul airport uh obviously we have heard that uh Canada has pulled out its last flight I guess uh out of uh Afghanistan so what is the situation right now in in, in regard as well to the explosions that we're hearing about
2: well, there's very little information right now that we can say with, with any uh, real certainty. But what we what we can definitely say is that this is a, uh, a really quickly evolving situation. We're getting a lot of new information coming in. So far, what we know is that the Pentagon in the U.S. has confirmed what they say is at least two explosions near the Kabul airport. One of them at one of the main gates where we know people were waiting in the hopes that they would be able to get in and access uh, one of the final evacuation flights leaving. Uh, the other one at what appears to be a hotel right nearby the airport. Uh, numbers of potential casualties here are still really unknown. Uh, we're certainly watching with any any uh, numbers here that could, again, shift and, and change as we learn more information here. We did hear an estimate come out from the Russian foreign ministry pegging the casual, casualty count at, uh, I believe it's now 13 dead, 15 injured. Uh, but again, the, these are very preliminary, unconfirmed numbers, and we don't have a sense yet um, of what the full scope of that is. Again, horrifying images, though, emerging of people flocking into the hospital in, in Kabul, the airport there. We have heard that there are no Canadian troops who have been injured or affected by this. We're still waiting, though, for word on whether any people who held Canadian passports or permanent residency were, were among those in the crowd.
0: Uh, what do we know about the actual explosions do we know uh, for example the source of where they we're hearing uh, preliminary reports again this is all uh, none of this can really be uh, proven at this point but that there's a possibility of, of, of a suicide bomber is that accurate at all
2: yeah so I mean again a, a lot of details here still to be confirmed We know that there had been a, a extremely high alert. Basically uh, sent out last night, officials in in Canada and the U.S. Here, whether well, the allied countries were certainly, it seems bracing for, uh, in, uh, with information of the potentially imminent attack by the Islamic State. We don't know right now who is uh, who may be responsible for this. The Pentagon did say that they're confirming this is a complex attack. That's generally wording that they use to reference kind of a combination of. Uh, potentially suicide bombing and IED, uh, gunfire exchange is, is kind of the terminology that we typically see around that. But again, the specifics of actually what happened here uh, very much remain up in the air. And we're, we're expecting a Pentagon briefing shortly and really kind of watching for the confirmation on that, where we, we would expect to get some more clear details there.
0: Uh, so we understand the last Canadian flight has left. Is that accurate?
2: Correct. Yeah, we learned early on this morning that the overnight, the Canadian evacuation efforts have wrapped up. They are now ceased. Um, this again comes as there, there's been escalating concerns about the security situation on the ground in Kabul and particularly in and around the airport. We heard from General Wayne Eyre, he's the acting chief of the defence staff this morning, saying that uh, Canadian personnel had left Kabul overnight uh, and, and again really kind of emphasising that, uh, that that there is uh, this is a really a, a heartbreaking situation that the, he, he understands the helplessness and the guilt, as he was saying, of Canadian troops and people who are going to have to really kind of reckon with this sense of leaving people behind we know that there are people left behind we're hearing that there are canadians uh, potentially still left on the ground global affairs canada of course is it has been cautioning them as to what to do next year um, but again really sending the message here that anyone who is still on the ground is, is effectively on their own at this point
0: wow uh, what about canadian troops i mean is is everybody out of there or is there any canadian military there
2: uh, Canadian. So we we heard that uh, Canadian military personnel have um, who were who are working with the evacuation effort have left. Uh, we knew that there were special forces operations on the ground in in and outside of the airport. Um, still a little bit unclear so far right now whether there are any of them left. Again, we don't typically get a lot of information around right. uh, their numbers and things like that on the ground. But uh, again, we did see from the Canadian Forces Twitter account saying that all uh, Canadian forces members are safe and accounted for that there have been no casualties uh, among their ranks from this and so really what we're working with here is that for for all effects and purposes there there is um there, there is really no canadian evacuation effort still continuing there on on the ground and so really looking ahead here to again what what the uh the the full casualty count will be here, whether there could be more coming. And, and again, this just incredibly unstable and volatile, I think we can, we can safely say, situation in and around the airport at the moment.
0: We remember, Amanda, a couple of days ago, we were talking about the August 31st deadline, and that was it. That was the final uh, date, and uh, Americans would be out and such. Obviously, Canada is out as of last night. Is there chatter now that the U.S. may stay?
2: That had certainly, I think, been what the hope had been for many up until about Tuesday when we saw that G7 meeting, the G7 leaders meeting, and, and right. heard Trudeau coming out saying um, fairly, I, I think it's, it's fair to say it's a little bit unusual to come out after a meeting like that and say that we would be willing to stay, we want to stay, and then knowing that the U.S. has been positioning themselves basically as saying that's not going to happen. And again, the, the August 31st deadline there has been in effect for a long time. They have for a while now been saying that August 31st, they would be withdrawing American troops. But again, this this um, the, the complicating factor here is that American forces are the ones who control the airport. They are the ones who have logistical, intelligence, security, all of those things. They are the ones holding that down at the moment. And because of that, they have to be the last ones on the ground to, to close that up and the, the last bodies there to, to leave the airport. Everyone else who's been involved in this air bridge effectively is trying to stagger their exit to make sure that they're leaving in effectively the, the most um, timely and secure way possible. But again, doing that, um, you're, you're kind of balancing these, these, these different factors here of how do we get our people out safely and also um, what happens to people that we can't get out who are, who are left behind
0: Amanda, you may have just answered my question. I'm not quite sure, but um, if the U.S. is going to stay there till the 31st, as you just described, why would Canada not stay till at least the 31st or the 30th, and 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 keep trying to get as many people out as they can in the next at least four days?
2: Yeah. Again, this this really has been, I think, a question that a lot of people are asking, and, and understandably so. Um, logistically, again, I think it. Um, it, it yeah. takes time to move the kind of assets that we have on the ground right now, mm-hmm. um, and of, of course, we're not the only ones who are there. There are 12 other countries participating in the air bridge who all have to move all of their aircraft, all of their people, all of their military resources off the ground in that airport. Because, of course, you don't want to leave all of that behind when the Americans leave. Otherwise, it, you know, you're, you're effectively losing that th- those resources and assets. And so, you've got just a massive effort underway to get everything that needs to be brought out. Out As quickly as possible. And um, again, really, really with this this context, I, I put the question to General Ayer this morning of effectively, if the U.S. is leaving, why can't Canada and other countries that want to stay step in and do that role? He was, I, I think you can say, blunt in his answer, saying that there, there is no other country in the world other than the U.S., that can project the force needed to actually hold and secure the airport right now. There is no other Mm. country, no coalition of countries, even if we work together that can match that force projection capabilities of the U S. So with them out, it effectively seems to force our hand.
0: Wow. Um, and obviously when this started a few weeks ago uh and the Taliban started making their moves and, and and people were were stunned at the speed in which all of this happened and then of course the Taliban took over uh we saw the news conference there was the alleged charm offensive things are going to be different we invite people women whatever blah 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 uh now obviously we see hard deadlines and and what's been happening at the airport and now obviously, suicide bombers. Uh, no one's got a crystal ball here, Amanda. but man, the next uh, few weeks, few months, what what is in store for Afghanistan?
2: That really is the big question right now, and it's it's incredibly hard to say. it's incredibly hard to watch, of course, um, you you certainly think of all of the people who uh, all of the Canadians who lost their lives in in that conflict, um, I think one hundred and fifty eight. Canadian soldiers who died uh, over the course of our mission there and and again over and over we're hearing this question of for what was it worth it um, general Air did did not really answer that question when it was put to him today, effectively saying that only time will tell whether it was worth it. Uh, and that the focus right now has to be on the people who who we were able to get out. In terms of, I think, what happens more broadly with Next Steps here, again, we're seeing Canada really pivot towards the focus on resettling the people who will be coming here and also shifting to work both in the humanitarian sense on the ground. Of course, there's, there's going to be a huge humanitarian crisis happening here um, with the, the the thousands, hundreds of thousands of displaced people internally in Afghanistan because of the Taliban violence and also figuring out how do we work with our embassies in the region in countries potentially like Pakistan to process all of the claims they are going to be coming through from people who fled across the border, right? Just an an absolutely massive, massive undertaking and and still a lot of questions about how it will unfold.
0: Uh, Obviously, Amanda, Canada in the middle of a federal election now uh, during all of this and a global pandemic, do you think this will affect the campaign in any way?
2: It's hard to say right now. Um, we're, We're certainly seeing... A significant interest and and um, compassion from Canadians about what is happening right now, real heartbreak, uh, the, this kind of pressure and, and demand for why can't we do more. You know, I, I covered the 2015 campaign um, back when the former Conservative government was, was coming under a lot of criticism for their their positioning around the, the Syrian refugee crisis and, and things like that. And that that absolutely heartbreaking photo of, of um a little boy on on the beach there, of course, and and really had a significant impact. I think what we're watching for right now, again, we know that Canadians care deeply about uh, the well-being of other people, particularly when it comes to things like refugees and and conflicts like this that we have been so involved in over the years. This really, I think, is going to be, it's it's certainly been a weight on the campaign so far. There hasn't been a single day where uh, Justin Trudeau has not been asked about this. And so really what we're watching for now is, again, what the effect here is going to be and whether the the concerns and the criticisms coming at the government for their handling of this and for why they didn't act sooner are going to really start to have a drag on that, as we saw in 2015. Again, two very different circumstances, certainly, but a lot of similarities, it seems, between them.
0: Amanda Connolly with us, political reporter for Global News. Amanda, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Marwarid Zayayi uh, in her final year of studying law and political science at the Kabul University in 96 uh, when Taliban first t- uh, took charge. She is now senior director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan and joins us to discuss what's going on uh, right in front of the uh, world. Uh, Marwarid, how are you? And uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this.
1: Uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, and uh, um, it's a it's a, uh, how how should I say how I feel how I am uh, very desperate and very stressed and very worried.
0: Tell us about your experience and how you got out and, and what that was like for you.
1: Um, my, my situation was different because I have been in Afghanistan for all my life until 2018, uh, that I came to Canada for job, uh, so I'm working here. Uh, but um, I know that the experience uh, other um, fellows, other Afghans are going through, uh, especially with immigration, uh, recently it has been... Uh, uh, a nightmare, a disaster. Uh, it's putting yourself at risk. It's just something like 50-50 chances of being either died or killed or being rescued.
0: Uh, Obviously, uh, there were forces uh, in Afghanistan for 20 years. During that time, we did see change. We did see women uh, move forward. We saw them becoming educated and such. Is it different now, even though we're seeing the Taliban return, is it a different Afghanistan now, simply because there was that 20 years of somewhat stability?
1: Absolutely, uh, there, this is a different Afghanistan uh, from 1996 that Taliban took over. Um, a whole generation of educated uh, population, uh, with uh, as much as high degree of a masters and PhD holders, um, and having the opportunity to work with the multicultural organizations on development projects. Um, holding high-ranking government positions. Uh, so all uh, progress in the country in terms of uh, free media, um, uh, sports even. Um, uh, so things have changed significantly for all citizens, including and particularly for women, having had the chance of uh, um, achieving so many, uh, and so many front lines uh, uh, from, from uh, education to uh, employment, to be activists, to form civil society organizations. Um, so, so many things have, have happened in the country, which is totally different from the previous time uh, Taliban controlled the country. So Taliban are actually facing a different country, different population
0: uh considering all of that um how do you explain or what are your thoughts in how uh, afghanistan fell so quickly back into the hands of the taliban uh
1: so how the country uh, fell in the back hand of taliban uh I, it's unbelievable for the population we we're not expecting uh, such a rapid change in in uh, the political and military situation. Uh, we are still in shock, and we are just trying to find out what went wrong. Definitely, it all relates to the uh, so-called peace talks between the U.S. government and the terrorist group called called Taliban. Um, so um, um, there is a very uh, direct connection with that, that we as civilians, we as citizens of Afghanistan uh, are trying to figure out what was wrong and why it happened.
0: Uh, we certainly remember the early images of this a few weeks ago with people rushing to the airport and, and people clinging to planes and such uh, then when when afghanistan uh, basically fell under the control of taliban they started a charm offensive we saw a news conference and 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 you know uh, them at least reaching out uh, what are your thoughts on the charm offensive uh, of the taliban is this taliban any different from what you witnessed back in 96
1: in terms of their ideology in terms of their behavior with women and and citizens of Afghanistan, I don't see any difference. Uh, uh, the only difference I see is that they are more now um, uh, know politics. They know the power of media and social media and that's because international media gave them platform, uh, gave them uh, that platform to raise their voices to uh, to just show a different space uh, from what they are doing um, in reality on the ground. So this is the only difference I see from Taliban uh, of 1996, Uh, knowing their politics, uh, using media and social media, playing with the international community, showing a different face, while their uh, attitude towards citizens inside the country is exactly the same, pushing women back home. uh, They are asking civil servants to come to their offices except for women and I'll further notice. What does it mean for women? It means that they are not allowed to go back to the office. They are not allowed to join back their classrooms and go to university.
0: Uh, We uh, obviously have seen the mass exodus uh, at the airport as uh, allies are trying to get out as many as they possibly can. Uh, We understand Canada's last evacuation uh, flight went out uh, today. Uh, and then today we're hearing, uh, of explosions at the airport. Uh, two different explosions, uh, allegedly terrorist, uh, organizations. What are you expecting to happen, uh, in Kabul or, or even the rest of Afghanistan after August 31st? Because it seems as, uh, allies are leaving that, uh, that things are really starting to escalate. Is that accurate?
1: Uh, I must say that today uh, we are why we are in this situation. Uh, like uh, um, Taliban are in their best behavior because of military forces in, inside the country, uh, international military forces inside the country, international media is in the country, and uh, after once they are left, uh, then the country will be in a in a, a chaos situation uh that uh will cause a severe human uh, humanitarian crisis uh it's not only taliban i have written a piece a couple of uh, weeks before uh um, there are more than 20 um terrorist groups active in afghanistan they, are, they will be fighting inside afghanistan against each other against civilians uh they will conduct terrorist attacks and it will be soon uh, beyond the borders. The attacks will be beyond the borders. Um, so the country will fall into a uh, um, severe war that is not preventable at all. And there will be bloodbath. And um, I don't know who will take the responsibility for uh, such chaos situation um, after August 31st. And, and and people are so concerned They are desperate to leave the country to wherever possible just for their safety and security. They know that uh, their lives are at risk. Doesn't matter who works where, but living in Afghanistan at this situation with too many terrorist groups is just uh, equal to, um, uh, uh, yeah, to society.
0: What should be the world response here? Uh, many said, uh, you know, obviously 20 years was a long time to be in, that Allied forces had to get out. They thought over 20 years that they had trained uh, enough personnel to at least hold their own, which has many asking questions is what happened there, because obviously 20 years of training didn't mount to much. Uh, there, but but again, now if we completely move out, how long before we're back in? Because this has just turned into a a hub of terror. Uh,
1: I must say that there were there was so many opportunities to prevent um, this situation. Uh, past two years of uh, or three years of peace talks, um, uh, there were so many opportunities to leverage and uh, prevent such situation. Um, uh, pushing Taliban to stop terrorist attacks, uh, f- fighting on the ground while Taliban were discussing peace, uh, in Doha. They were meanwhile conducting attacks in Kabul and no one held them accountable for that. They, uh, didn't meet the, um, ag- the agreement uh, made by, with the U.S., uh, but the still U.S. kept quiet. United States kept quiet and pursued the, uh, agreement until um, until end. Um, so um, what I see is the possibility is international community, because you know what Afghanistan is, and the, uh, um, uh, there's a gap of government in Afghanistan. There is no government currently, uh, and Taliban discussing or in announcing soon there will be uh, a new government uh, uh, announced. International community has the leverage, political pressure on Taliban to create a government, an inclusive government, including women, um, other political parties um, and minority groups, if they want a real, stable Afghanistan and and a a country that's uh, moving towards peace. I know it's not, it will be not peace uh, immediately, but moving towards peace and stability if an inclusive government is in place by political pressure from international communities. Uh, that can be done through, through discussions with Taliban, sanctions on Taliban, conditional um, development uh, aid uh, with, with, with uh, the new government, which is will, will be formed soon. Um, so these are the measures that can be taken. Uh, to to prevent uh, more worsening situation in the country.
0: So, should uh, uh, the, the, does Afghan require peacekeeping troops from allies to be there all of the time? Is this something that it's just you know because it is a hub of terror, there needs to be occupation there all the time?
1: I've once uh, asked for peacekeepers um, peacekeeping missions for the past uh, year because they the. Envisioned such situations and uh, shouted loud to international community, the country will be falling in the hands of terrorist groups if there is no uh, international military forces um, in, in, in place or peacekeepers are in place. And we are in that situation now. We don't, Afghans don't want uh, an international military forces to be there for forever. We know that. But What I am saying is that 20 years was enough time for uh, like we had uh, international military forces from uh, all over the world. If they couldn't demolish, if they couldn't fight Taliban and diminish them um, uh, with with all the full forces uh, and uh, um, in actual uh, they, Taliban got more powerful. So how you can explain at, uh, uh, Afghan uh, military forces with little um, um, training or with little um, machinery in hand fight fight Taliban. So I think there was more kind of like political uh, um, uh, deal with the Taliban rather than military gain. So I, mm. I this was was definitely possible through um, um, politi- political settlement to win uh, a 50-50 kind of uh, um, uh, political uh, government, not through military. And now we have seen that Taliban were given so much power. Where did they get this weapon weapon from, the finances from? Um, Those were the things that should have been prevented. And governments who are supporting Taliban should have been pushed to stop that.
0: What can, Taliban, or sorry, what can afghan women do now i mean is it just stay home stay safe is there any opportunity is there any chance is there or for their own safety is it just do what they're told
1: women are asked to stay home to stay safe uh, or actually not safe uh, just stay home because this is your place um, i'm proud of to say that um, as i said before at uh, Today's population is different uh, from 1996. Uh, uh, right after Taliban took over Kabul, women were on the streets protesting for their rights and raising their voices that we are not the people of 20 years ago. You cannot push us back. Um, so they are taking risks. Who could, ev- who could be evacuated? So they are out and raising their voices from outside. But who are stuck inside Kabul, they need an immediate protection inside Afghanistan. And we just want the international community to do something for them while they are taking the um, courage to stand up for their rights and for the uh, rights of all other women and girls who, who are left behind and are pushed back. Um, from their schools, universities, home to stay at home. It's hard to push them back because today women are not ready to give up what they have gained for 20 years. This means, you know what, this means more violence uh, and uh, execution, but uh, they're just taking that risk because they they don't want to go back to the life in prison. It's equally... uh, Losing their rights is equally losing their lives. So they are just selecting between to be in prison or to confront with Taliban and ask for their rights. This is the international community's um, responsibility to protect that because they were there and giving all these years this slogan that we are here to protect women's rights. And this is the time. Everyone can do that when there is a some kind of security and stability. But let's show that by action when it's not secure, when women are at real risk in the country.
0: Where do you see Afghanistan one year from now?
1: If the international community is not doing um, enough to stop uh, the current crisis, or change it uh, towards a more kind of inclusive government and stable government. Um, this will be, I must say, um, a severe humanitarian crisis, um, lots of violence, human rights violence, violence against women, more execution, um, they will they will continue killing and killing and killing until people stop uh, resisting Taliban, and I'm just afraid that how many more um, civilians will be killed? How many thousands of civilians will be killed uh, until the Taliban feel they are they have the full control of the country? So I'm just asking the world: Are you watching that? Are you waiting for such a crisis to happen, then you will intervene?
0: Marwarid Zayayi with us, Senior Director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. Marwarid, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your insight with us. Be well.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tom Wilson is about to join us. Lots of stories to tell, lots uh, happening in his life since the last time we chatted. So let's bring in Tom Wilson, author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie in the Rodeo Kings Junkhouse. You pick your Tom. Uh, he is with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm sweating it up. Are you there, Tom? I think we lost you. I'm right here. Okay, we got you. Uh, so, uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, obviously, uh, lots going on with a global pandemic. What have you been up to?
3: I've been uh, writing a second book uh, uh, for Penguin Random House. That's been going good. Uh, I wrote a. I, I've been busy. I'm going to tell you. I don't. I hate to say this, Scott, but I have uh, thrived throughout the pandemic only because all of the noise of the world uh has uh, subsided a little bit and that's enabled me to be able to not have to do business and not have to worry about selling tickets to Massey Hall for Blackie and the Rodeo Kings and be able to concentrate on my art and my writing and that's what I've done I've I've been on a strict schedule for the last year and a half practically I get up in the morning I write I write music I'm working with Serena Ryder presently Blackie and the Rodeo Kings this way and uh, i'm doing a soundtrack for a movie and then i go to my art studio at the cotton factory and i paint all afternoon i am basically scott a spoiled brat
0: <laughs> so any plans uh any thoughts in the future about going back out on the road back on tour with any one of these uh various bands
3: uh it's funny i've been uh only in the last month uh my my wife said uh uh, in July, I said, well, you know what, I'm just going to keep painting and going to keep writing shows. You're going to be surprised. There's going to be a bunch of shows come out." and sure enough, uh, I'm working uh, every week, uh, practically, up until Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, I've been to Calgary and Saskatoon. I've been to Nashville. I've been to Ottawa. I've been to Prince Edward County. And uh, it looks like that's going to keep going. I end up in San Francisco in the beginning of October. We'll see how that goes. And then, uh, and then I'm home for Thanksgiving. So I, I'm, I'm busy. It, this, is a, this is a great time. Also, I should let you know that uh, I have a play that's going to be opening uh, the season at Theater Aquarius in 2022. So we're looking forward to that, too.
0: Holy smokes. That's incredible. Uh, talk of... Of that, Scott, I just
3: have to add one more thing. And they're presently making uh, a movie um, uh, on the book right now. It's been in production uh, throughout the pandemic. So uh, it's been a busy and... time
0: uh obviously the book your life story and your discovery i'm guessing the second one is and is the second edition of this and you all of a sudden being recognized and registered as a mohawk
3: that's right yeah that just happened in the last couple of weeks i mean the second book is uh um uh, uh called blood memory um and it is uh it's a continuation of uh of the story because you know, finding your identity. This is going to be a book uh, strictly about identity. Identity, Scott, is something that most of us take for granted. But for those of us that actually have been adopted and don't know where we are, uh, where our origins are from, it is a journey. And it's a journey that I'm uh, I'm going to continue. I'm at the age of 62. Hopefully I have 20 more years to keep discovering uh, um, more about my identity and more about my culture.
0: Talk about the process and what it meant to you to become recognized and registered as a Mohawk.
3: Well, it meant everything. Uh, to be registered as a Mohawk of Kahnawake means that uh, my nation, my uh, my land, is acknowledging me as one of them. To me, that's more important than the Canadian government giving me a card so I can save money on gas and taxes. That doesn't matter to me. I've lived my entire life uh, uh, as a... Uh, as a Hamiltonian, I still am a Hamiltonian, of course. So, um, I mean the the common the common uh, dialogue is, hey man, you got now you can get your status card and save on taxes, and that's really not the goal. That has nothing to do with identity. I mean, I make enough money that I'm not really concerned about that kind of thing. It would be nice, of course, but most of all, uh, uh, the job of, uh, of of recognition by your own people. That's what's important the Indian Affairs uh, uh, granting you uh, a status card, that's really not my interest.
0: You know, uh, to be honest, Tom, I never even thought of that. You know, the, uh, and, and I remember getting uh, goosebumps reading this because I, I know how much you have searched for your, your roots and, and, and your origins and stuff and such, and how can anybody not be anything but happy for all of this and, and you for what you've discovered?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 as happy as can be, and to be quite honest with you, again, Scott, uh, it takes a while for these things to resonate with you when you're discovering them. It's not like uh, a party where someone brings out a cake and you blow out the candles and you're officially the next. The next year is ahead of you. It's uh, it's a gradual thing, and it's a very personal thing. It's something that uh, I can't really share with anybody around me. Maybe my wife, maybe my my kids who are. Now also going to be acknowledged as, as mm-hmm. Mohawks of Ganawage. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a process and this is a discovery and everybody has their own and it's a common thread that runs throughout every, not every household, but many, many, many households across our country. It's why my book became a bestseller was because so many people have stories about adoption within their families. So many people have skeletons in their closet that they, uh, uh, only get revealed to them later in life, after people die and after the dust settles in family stories. You know, do you start to really get get the uh, uh, you know? There's identities that are revealed that weren't there before.
0: Let's try this again. Tom, can you hear me?
3: I can hear you, Scott. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. I just, Man. Can I just point? Can I just point something out, Scott? I yeah. grew up in yeah. Hamilton. I grew up listening to CHML pretty well my entire life it was the radio station that was on in bunny wilson's kitchen at 162 east 36th street nothing like this ever happened to paul hanover or tom (laughs) Sherrington. i don't know what's going on here
0: (laughs) oh man uh it's a drag because i've been looking forward to this interview for so long anyway you said something that really resonated and you were talking about why your book was so popular and you were talking about having adoptive parents and searching for your own identity I think it was something very similar to that that resonated with me in regard to the residential schools and the horrific uh, discoveries that have been found uh, on the property of residential schools with the bodies and remains of residential school children. And I I think what really started to make this resonate for me was they then talked about the mental illness and what it must be like to go and be in a family that has lost uh, its culture, lost its Identity lost, its family lost, its relatives, and how that weighs on one over the decades, over the years. We talk about substance abuse and and all of that sort of thing, and 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 we talk about that every year in 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 mental illness programs and campaigns and 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 every family as you said has this stuff but that's when it really resonated for me my goodness what these indigenous families have gone through over the decades having to deal with this stuff and it it seems odd that it's taken something like that for the rest of us to understand this
3: well it it does take severity i mean as my mother said uh my mother's 82 years old and uh when these children's uh, remains were found, and Canada was gasping. They couldn't believe that this was happening in Canada. My mother said, "We've been telling the Canadian government about this for decades yeah. and decades, and nobody would listen." But this, the the fallout of uh, colonialism and the Canadian government and their figurehead Sir John A. Macdonald. This was the goal. The goal was to take away the identity, to take the Indian out of the child. My mother, in grade three, was starting to be taught. She was told by her teacher in residential day school, take a look around the classroom, because you are the last Indians this world is ever going to know. The intent of that school system, the intent of the Canadian government and of the colonial movement was to wipe out the indigenous population, and since they couldn't wipe us out, now we're made to be—we're need—we're almost like fallen soldiers. You know what I mean? We're mm. almost like people that are uh, allowed to be mocked and to be considered um, uh, an appendage on society because it's pretty hard to pick yourself up. The 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 generational trauma that's going on is—you uh, can see it you can see it every day if you take a look around
0: has what we have all discovered and as your mother said we've all known for a long time you can't hide behind this has 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 this changed canada in some way has it changed our perception of all of this
3: well uh i guess we're going to wait and see i mean there's a lot more there's a lot more remains children's remains to be found uh uh you know we're up to i think about 5000 right now uh, dead children that the Canadian government uh, was res- and the Catholic Church uh, churches were responsible for, for uh, let's just call it murder. Um, there's a lot more to come, Scott. I think that the uh, that Canada shouldn't uh, start picking their jaw up off the floor yet. That there's a lot more to come. Um, I mean, this is a story that that should have been told. You know, can I just say before we go any further? Because I know you're probably going to ask me about that damn statue downtown right but let me just let me just before we get to that the way I, I still believe that we live in the greatest country in the world for everything that i'm saying i believe we we live in the canada is the greatest place george wilson who raised me lost his eyesight as a tail gunner and a lancaster bomber in the second world war i went to every remembrance day as a kid i stood for the canadian flag and everything that that stood for and I am now known as an indigenous Mohawk from Ganawage, and I'm telling you that this country needs to listen to one another. We've got to maybe get rid of Twitter and maybe turn off CNN and Fox News for a while and start sharing each other's stories, because as my mother said, we've been telling the Canadian government about these dead children for several decades, and nobody listened. So I really suggest that we all start listening because that is how we are going to be a greater country, and that's how we're going to understand each other. Until we do that, we're going to be lost.
0: And I think a lot of Canadians have been lost in what to do, feeling the way they do over all of this, and disgusted in our own actions for probably not looking at this sooner. But and many have said, "What do we do? What can we do?" But you just brought up a very valid point. Just listen. Just listen to the stories. Just listen to what they have to say.
4: It's true.
3: Hamiltonians did react. Hamiltonians sent. Uh, sent uh, well, I don't. I don't know what the number was. A thousand. 2000 letters to city hall asking for the remover of sir johnny mcdonald's statue but the archaic system and the white men and women inside city hall chambers it wasn't enough and city hall did what they usually did okay let me just say it, make it black and white they let the people do the dirty work for them hmm. so in, instead of them having to have the uh the mark on them that they made the decision to remove that statue they cowardly allowed pe- the people of Hamilton to do it for them. I think that sucks. And that's nothing that, that has no, there's no shadow of, of leadership in, in that, kind of, that kind of movement. We should be, as Hamiltonians, as a Hamiltonian, sky, we should be leading by example. We should be working our way into the future by bright decisions that are inclusive we shouldn't be kicking people out of their, out of their, their, their tents. We need to have to be more passive. We have to be more involved with the people that need our help in this, in, in this community. Hamilton's a great city. Hamilton could be a greater city, and it will be a greater city
0: tom we are plum out of time we got to do this again tom wilson with us uh, author visual artist musician lee harvey osmond blackie and the rodeo kings junk house tom i didn't even get to talk about my paddle tom made us a paddle it's beautiful uh I, anyway I, you
3: know what call yeah, I, unfortunately you got to call my publicist these days if you want to have a chat with me i'm a phone call away i'd love to come back on anytime i really i love hearing your voice
0: all right, thanks so much, Tom. Be well, and we will take you up on that. Uh, Tom Wilson with us, TomWilsonOnline.com to see all the great things that he is up to. Here comes the commentary. As a result of not having an actual reason to call a federal election, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has, as the CBC put it, quote, yet to make a case for himself, end quote, for dragging Canadians to the polls during a global pandemic to do nothing more than win his majority. Justin Trudeau is desperately looking for a strong wedge issue to create a fight between him and his opposition that distracts you from what seems to be him having nothing left in the tank that he hasn't already promised the world in past elections. It's as if the opposition was better prepared for the election that he called than the Prime Minister himself. Another example is the headline in yesterday's left-leaning Toronto Star that reads... Quote, Aaron O'Toole is so bad, he makes Doug Ford look good, J.T. charges. Really? Where's the rim shot? What's next? Your mother is so ugly. J.T.'s act has seemed to grow old and tired with more promises and the same tall tales of fear in his opposition. It's what one resorts to when you don't have much else to offer during an election no one wanted. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's interesting that... um that this is just really coming out now. And, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't notice it. You know, people are on holidays every so often. People are away, then they reappear. Uh, but oddly enough, the timing of this and the fact that, uh, you know, we remember at one time we had Nasi in Health Canada giving conflicting information. And, uh, you know, but let all the scientists speak, even though they're all contradicting each other. Uh, and now we've gone from one extreme to the other extreme where we're not hearing from From Dr. Tam, where's Dr. Tam? Paging Dr. Tam. Paging Dr. Tam. Can we have an update? And it appears that uh, because of the election, that has all uh, been put on hold. Uh, Michael Tobe is with us, Trey Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing? i'm doing very well thank you so much for taking the time to join us michael i greatly appreciate that uh there's been lots of chatter today about dr tam how we haven't heard any news conferences uh, uh anything talking about this rise in cases that we're seeing is this just part of normal government during an election what's going on here
4: it is a little bit i mean unfortunately what happens generally speaking is when an election is called the sitting government obviously manages things um you still keep a base number of staff members around to handle certain issues, especially something major explodes, like let's say a major international event explodes like a war or something like that. You need to ha- have a team, even if it's small, sort of assembled to, um, to put out messaging, to put out any sort of talking points or speeches that are necessary for either the minister or the leader or the prime minister, if you're actually part of the government, and for that reason, you just keep people handy as best you can. Uh, so there's always people around. So, I mean, obviously, something very, very awful happened with COVID-19. The Liberals would, in fairness, have people around to deal with it as best they can. But at the same time, unfortunately, things also fall by the wayside, which is wrong. I completely agree. But it does happen from time to time. The difference here is we're dealing with a global health pandemic. So this is not an issue that we can let drop versus, say, you know, uh, extra money for, say, building of a bridge or some sort of a tunnel that is just announced. But unfortunately, you know, they might take an extra day or two to do it when it comes to something like a global pandemic, whether Dr. Tam is speaking or whether some other issue has to be discussed or, more importantly, the daily COVID-19 rates, which is the big thing. um, That's really where the problem comes into play, because the public wants to be kept up to date.
0: And I can see that being the point if things were stable, Michael, but they appear not to be because the last press release that she did do without going out in front of people said that the cases were up like 38%. So if that doesn't warrant a news conference, what does? And again, as you mentioned, this isn't government policy. This is health and safety during a global pandemic.
4: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Look, I mean, no matter what, and what I said to you is just is, is the way government operates and... Look, I mean, during an election, I was actually part of a team that stayed back and actually dealt with certain things. I was in 2008, so I know how the messaging works for that. But I agree with you that something like COVID-19, the public needs to be kept informed of everything. Even if everything is moving along swimmingly, we want to know that as well. So I completely agree with you that if the Canadian public is being left in the dark or if Canadians feel they're being left in the dark, that is completely wrong, and it's incumbent on the federal government, in this case, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, to fix it as quickly as possible.
0: So uh, is this an advantage for the Prime Minister? Would it be bad if Dr. Tam was sitting out here every week or every day saying the numbers are going up, you know?
4: It, look, I mean, obviously anything that is negative affects the federal government, even if their hands are not necessarily, quote-unquote, dirty from it. In the case of COVID-19, you know, Justin Trudeau can point blame and fingers, as he loves to do on most other issues, every which way except for himself. He never looks in the mirror directly and realizes that he may be the issue more than anything else. But certainly, yes, I agree with you that um, if, if something major comes along, one, the federal government has to deal with it. But two, yes, it is possible that Justin Trudeau might say that, well, if everything is going along and it's going swimmingly and everything seems to be in proper order, what is the necessary need or what is the need to always have details coming out or floating out all the time? However, quite frankly, you know, if Dr. Tam and others say that there should be a more uh, regular update system in place, which obviously right now during an election we don't have, I don't think most Canadians, no matter what their political stripe, if they have one, would disagree.
0: I want to ask you about a couple of headlines that uh, I saw yesterday, uh, and the question's been raised, you know, was the Prime Minister ill-prepared for uh, this election that he called? Uh, The CBC yesterday, over a week into campaign, Trudeau has yet to make a case for himself, Mm -hmm. meaning why there should be an election. Uh, The Star's headline was, Aaron O'Toole is so bad, he makes Doug Ford look good, JT charges. Uh, I'm waiting for a rim shot and your mother's so ugly jokes. Um, Like, like this appears to me like there are no issues here for the prime minister to jump on that we haven't already heard many times over. So he's just looking for a fight here. It appears he's looking for a wedge issue to fight with people and divide people.
4: That's the only strategy they have right now. That's what happens when you have an early election call that very few Canadians want it. And I'm not saying that because I and others have been writing for it for various publications, and I just recently wrote it for the National Post, and I'll be doing other stuff for them. But, I mean, obviously this is something that a lot of people, whether it's prominent columnists like Andrew Coyne or, or anyone else, they, we all look at the same sort of thing. Or whether it's business people like Terry Corcoran, we all sort of look at the numbers, we crunch them out, and we realize that there just aren't major issues here. So the only thing the federal government can do to keep itself in the news, because as we've seen via opinion polls, which, yes, have to be taken with a grain of salt, but still do provide a snapshot of what's going on, what you're basically seeing right now is that the, the Liberals are losing an enormous lead that they've had for slightly over a year. The Conservatives have either overtaken them, as they have in some polls like ECOS and Main Street Research, or a margin of error with things like Nanos, Ipsos, uh, Angus Reid, and others, he now needs to pick a fight, like you said, and he, that's the only way he's going to do it. And that's why he's accusing, for example, the, you know that whole rigmarole that we recently saw with Christia Freeland and the public-private health healthcare brouhaha, which was about as yeah. much of which was as much of a brouhaha as you know as anything. You know, it, it, there's not even the slightest bit of controversy about it. And you know, we've been through it, and I'm sure you've talked about it with other people. You know, it backfired, and it backfired heavily because. Canadians, A, realized probably what was going on. B, I think most Canadians also know that there are private health care providers and MRIs, diagnostic procedures and otherwise that exist, or the Shoulder Clinic in Thornhill, Homewood and Guelph. It's there, whether they like it or not. The Liberals can claim it's a boogeyman, but that's not going to work. And three, Kate Harrison of Summa Strategies threw out the entire video response that Aaron O'Toole did in his discussion about public and private health care from last July and, of course, the Liberals left out the most important ingredient, which is that Mr. O'Toole, yes, he believes that there should be private partners and public-private synergies in healthcare, care, but he also believes that the universal health care system should remain in place and supports it. And that's the key. There's a fight that the Liberals want to have happen. It's not going to work at all. Twitter has deemed that video to be, you know, manipulated media, which will stick with it forever. Um, and the Liberals, some Liberals, uh, they're talking heads are scoffing at it, They shouldn't be scoffing at it because they look like complete fools. They have huge amounts of egg on their face. They know that they're losing this battle, so they're basically throwing darts in the air as much as they can, Scott, to find anything that sticks. And you know what's happened thus far for two weeks? Absolutely nothing.
0: So how does Jugmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole react to this? Because clearly they are are benefiting from this. How do they stay out of the fight?
4: Well, I mean, so are we referring back to the fight of COVID-19, or are we talking about something different?
0: Well, uh, again, uh, the Prime Minister is looking for any... Yeah, well, he's looking for any loose thread. So how do the opposition members not get drawn into that fight? You were talking about uh, long-term...
4: Okay, you just isolated two. I was wondering why there weren't other parties with it. But no... Uh, Mr. Singh, uh, Mr. O'Toole, the Green Party, the Bloc Habakkuk, and others, the best thing that they do is just don't take the bait. So if the Liberals want to poke a fight, if they want to poke the bear, if they want to bring up some issue that I think that they know, they're hoping to God will actually attract eyeballs and interest, but I think that the opposition parties would realize it's not going to do much of anything, you still have to push back. You still have to have messaging in place to show what your side of the fence believes in or what your party or leader supports. But at the same place, just don't take the bait. The liberals are flailing. This is what's happening. This is not a conservative who's been around a long time, which is me, saying it. Everyone else is seeing it as well. The opinion polls are actually showing it. And the liberals, and you can actually see it based on their response through social media and otherwise, the ones who've been around a long time, most of them, are either keeping quiet or just gently pushing back because they realize that they're in big trouble. It doesn't mean that, you know, that Aaron O'Toole is going to win a brand spanking new majority government come September 20th. No one's suggesting that. But they also realize that right now the uh, opportunity to have a third successive government for Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals is highly in jeopardy right now. So the best thing to do is, yeah, keep pushing issues, see what you can do. But for the opposition parties, it's stay in place, Keep on message. Produce your policies and ideas that will resonate with large swaths of the voting public. And if all comes to pass like this and things remain the way they are, and we know that campaigns obviously have lots of twists and turns, this could be a very stunning result on September 20th that I don't think many Canadians, no matter whether they're political pundits like me or otherwise, ever thought was going to happen
0: afghanistan we've obviously seen what's happened there in the last few weeks canada has uh just completed its last evacuation flight the americans are there till the 31st uh how how, will this become an election issue is this resonating with canadians
4: you know it's interesting also as well as you probably saw and maybe you've mentioned that russia is actually leaving afghanistan too they were the Mm. last ones not to go so even vladimir putin realizes that this is a lost cause and he has to get out so, yeah, I mean, so that, that's my segue for saying, yes, I think that it will become an election issue in Canada, and it already has to some degree. You and I talked about this recently, and I've talked about it with others, the whole kerfuffle with Aaron O'Toole correctly putting out a, a press release stating that a conservative government, if elected, would never recognize the Taliban in Afghanistan. Liberals like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau, basically saying, I, taking a non-committal, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens approach, which worked so badly for them and they got slammed so badly that within about 9, 10 hours of Mr. O'Toole's press release, Mr. Trudeau was then basically marching along the same line. But again, this is always an, an example, and Justin Trudeau's been doing this since 2015, where he always follows rather than leads on international affairs. That's why Canada's been at the kiddie table from foreign affairs for, or foreign affairs table for so long, because unfortunately we don't have the the strength and numbers, we don't have the bold ideas, we don't have the policy sense that, quite frankly, my old friend and boss Stephen Harper had, and even previous prime ministers such as Jean Chrétien, and Paul Martin, who certainly on foreign affairs did not take the same positions as Harper. But at least took, they basically took positions on international issues, no matter what it was, whether it was dealing with Canada-U.S. relations or international wars such, you know, the war in Bosnia and various other things. They tried to at least take a position that was logical, coherent, and most Canadians, even if they didn't completely agree with it, would approve basically of of the general direction. Justin Trudeau hasn't done that for so long, That gives Aaron O'Toole certainly an enormous opportunity to attack him, as he just did with the press release, and to keep hammering away at him. It also, interestingly, gives other progressive parties who want to poach more left-wing votes, like the NDP and the Greens and others, it gives them a bit of an opportunity, not because necessarily foreign affairs and international relations are their forte in life, but they can actually state that, well, look, we would have taken a different approach, or we would have balanced it off in this fashion or he felt that Justin Trudeau basically twiddled his thumb and didn't react quickly enough. Those are ways that you can actually make an election issue, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do.
0: Uh, last question. We've only got about a minute left here, Michael. Uh, okay. All four parties have come up with housing, uh, uh, housing policy in yeah. the last week or so. Are you surprised housing has pushed its way to the top here? Uh, and I guess not surprising in the sense because there's really no other issues other right. than the pandemic and Afghanistan. What's what's? Are you surprised housing has made its way to to the forefront here?
4: Well, you sort of described it, but I think that actually the pandemic is the reason why housing has come up because. A lot of individuals and even some, you know, small business owners are struggling quite a lot when it comes to, if nothing else, keeping permanent structures in place, maintaining proper housing or being able to afford housing in general. Um, Certainly, I mean, it applies more for individuals, obviously, but I think a lot of them are realizing that because of the issues that have happened, because they've been relying so heavily on the government for so long, Serbs, Jews, etc., that they just don't have a lot of disposable income like they used to uh, pre-COVID-19 to actually be able to afford a proper house for they and their families to live in. So I'm not surprised that it's come up as an issue. I think what is interesting, though, is that all four major parties have brought forward policies that, you know, obviously I think the Conservatives have a more logical approach to it overall, but they've all brought in policies that make sense to their base. It's a question of whether the undecided vote and independents are going to look at housing and say is this really a major issue for me is this something I want to base my vote on or is this just chatter that ultimately will lead to nothing and because of the way people view politics these days Scott you know not that you and I and others are included but the general person on the street you know the man on the street the woman on the street they know that a lot of these things are just chatter and in the end ultimately they may like what comes from the four major parties when it comes to housing but I don't think a lot of them will have the confidence that those policies will come to fruition.
0: Michael Tobe with us, Troy media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. You too. Take care. Housing, uh, so much of of an issue that all four major political parties, meaning the Greens and uh, the NDP, the Liberals, the Conservatives, have all laid out some sort of uh, housing plan, which is uh, bizarre. And it's everything from you know incentives for this or stopping other people from buying or bidding or programs for this or that. And I don't know. This seems like a really simple supply and demand problem. If you have more supply, then, of course, uh, <laughs> the e- e- each unit isn't worth as much. That, of course, curbs a lot of these issues, incl- including speculation. So for the last 10 years, 15 years, why are we not building more homes? Why are we not creating more smart homes? Why are we not creating more smart neighborhoods that are linked with transit and such? Why are we not doing this? Instead, we're stacking uh, ourselves up like cordwood in a country that is, uh, you know, as large or larger than the United States with 10 times less the population. You know, it's insane. And I think one of the reasons we're having this discussion now is because we have spent a year and a half in a global pandemic and we realized we don't need to live like Europeans in order to survive and to be happy and, and, and to be prosperous and to save the environment. You know, it's like expansion is bad, building is bad, housing is bad. Yet we think, you know, we're always talking about if we need more immigration to fill the jobs and to c- continue to prosper and to grow. But we don't seem to be building anything. So, uh, you know, at least in the U S Biden's build back better plan includes infrastructure and roads and bridges and housing. And, and, and we just talk a good game. Let's bring in David Oikel, president of the Ontario Real Estate Association and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: I am. Put me in, coach. That was awesome, Scott. <laughs> that was you, know,
0: great. That was, you know, that
5: was great. I'm all fired up. <laughs>
0: Uh maybe you should be interviewing me. Uh you know, I, I, you know, I'm amazed and I guess I've been through enough elections to see this crap over and over again whether it's talking about a mandatory vaccine or whether it's talking about housing. Now, we have all four political parties major political parties have come forward with a housing plan. Does this surprise you that this issue is pushed to the forefront?
5: You know, not really, uh, Scott. Uh, you know, we've been talking about it. ARIA and our member boards around the province have been talking about the need for, uh, you know, addressing housing affordability for since long before the pandemic. Um, and, uh, we've been talking about it and, and really it comes down to what you just said. I mean, the laws of supply and demand are undefeated. Um, you know, we, we need more supply, uh, and, you know, it's really gratifying and we knew coming into the election once it was, you know, that uh, it was going to be a top three election issue we felt, uh, because housing affordability affects, uh, a lot of people or their, their kids or the directly or, or indirectly. Um, so we knew that it was going to be a, an issue and we're really gratified that all four parties have, uh, have lots of stuff in there. I mean, you pointed out that there's, you know, pluses and minuses of, of all kinds of different things, but the fact that it's being talked about is something that we're uh, we're really grateful about, and uh, and we're enthusiastic about the conversation cont- continuing for sure.
0: Why are we not building more homes? Why is there an anti-building mentality? It seems in this province now.
5: Yeah, it's it's really all three layers of government probably have a role to play. I mean, there's uh, perhaps zoning implications at a, at a local level that you know you can't build that kind of place here or that kind of density here, you know, that we might want to uh you know, the increase density because that could you know, because it's all kinds of uh as your introduction talked about, it's all kinds of price levels and uh and affordable housing, uh renting, all kinds of different housing uh is necessary and some of that might be higher density. And so uh you know the municipalities have a role to play to uh allow certain densities. Um you know the province has a role to play uh for for sure uh, you know to uh, assist with that um uh those approvals uh you know and and, and it's going to take money and so you know each level of government's going to have to uh to to play a role for sure you know reduce red tape make it easier uh shorten the distance between when somebody wants to do something and when they can uh, can get the the product built um so everybody's got a role to play to be sure
0: As you mentioned, you are happy, your organization is happy that all four parties have offered some sort of housing policy and brought this to uh, the forefront. As you mentioned, they all have different things, uh, catering to different people for different reasons and such. But would, and again, I, 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 I hate to keep slamming home this very simple point, but would not all of their concerns in whatever way they want to go at it, uh, whether it's by jigging this or jigging that or creating policy or changing mortgage rules or whatever, would not all of those issues be solved if we just built enough homes for the people who live here?
5: Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. I mean, I think that there's always, um, uh, you know, more... Uh, more supply certainly helps uh, that issue that you talked about, you know, about demand, uh, you know, and, and supply imbalance uh, currently, you know. But there's lots of good stuff there about, you know, you know, reducing the cost of, uh, you know, there's lots of good stuff in the, in the liberal announcement the other day about reducing the cost of CMHC premiums, you know, uh, home buyer savings plan, you know, some of the things on the on the the cost of acquisition side would be helpful to allow. Uh, so all of those things are helpful. Um, You know, the biggest thing is, of course, supply, but everything that's being, you know, a lot of different things that are being proposed are are all helpful because it isn't a one-size-fits-all issue across the country, Um, you know, big cities, small cities. So, you know, all of those things are helpful for sure.
0: How did we get here, David? Because at one time we, we had a handle on this. We were growing and growth was good, but then it seemed that growth wasn't so good. How did we get to where we are?
5: Wow, I'd be rich if we, uh, if I could have the answer to that. Um, you know, it is interesting that it hasn't really snuck up on us because it's really kind of been increasing for the last little while. And yeah, demand has been high, you know, for a long time. You know, we've, uh, and, and, you know, we continue to, uh, you know, um, immigration is such an important part of, uh, of the, the growth of this country and it's been, uh, really uh, beneficial for us. And that's an important point as well is that. You know, uh, these price increases and this high demand uh, over the last year and a half since the pandemic began. I mean, this market's uh, been happening really when immigration has has, uh, has stopped. Um, so when, Im- when immigration starts again, which is very important for the country, and we're enthusiastic about that, you know, demand is going to increase again. So the supply issue is really something that has to be addressed. And I don't know how, uh, how we got here and, and what, the, uh, what the issues have been to, uh, to make sure that we were slower than, um, than the, in building than uh, the demand has been increasing.
0: Uh, what about the uh, issue of foreign ownership? We see this as an issue in Vancouver, Toronto, other big cities like that, people who are uh, buying properties for investment rather as residents to live in. Um, what are your thoughts on, on foreign ownership?
5: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's a, a small element of that. I mean, I'm less familiar, to be fair, of of what the the experience out in in BC. So you know, I'm not as informed on that. Um, you know, I know that in uh, in 2018 uh, they uh, talked about you know foreign buyers being an issue uh, in the Toronto area, and they did some research. And you know, you should make policies based on data. Um, and they did they did some research, and it was less than five percent of the the properties that were being bought were by foreign owners, and, they, and, they, and so it really wasn't a significant component, but they did put on a foreign uh, uh, buyer's tax in the, the Golden Horseshoe of 15%. Um, you know, and really over the last year, I don't think that there's been um, a significant number of, uh, I think, the, uh, of foreign buyers in the market. Um, in, in to, uh, it's really been, uh, you know, folks uh, that want more space, um, you know, uh, gym at home, uh, office at home, um so I think it, it, I don't think that's been uh, driving the demand in Ontario over the last little while, but if policies are going to be introduced, it should be based on on good data. Um, and uh, you know I think that you know vacant houses a vacant house tax is always an interesting idea again, based on you know you should do it based on data so that you know housing is at least productively used. I mean, I think that those are good discussions to make sure that people are living in the properties that are available
0: uh you alluded to this, David. But how has this pandemic, this global pandemic changed things in the in the last year and a half?
5: Well, I think that you know I'm in ottawa, um, and so you know uh, you know large uh, percentage of the, the the you know half the folks here you know uh, work for high tech and half the folks work for uh, the federal government, uh, you know broadly speaking, um, you know uh, you know obviously some institutions as well, you know hospitals and and uh, and such. but You know, people realized that they didn't have to live, Um, you know, uh, they didn't have to get to the office every day. Uh, They're working from home. Um, They realized their partner was really loud on Zoom, so they needed more space than in their condo and driving each other nuts uh, a little bit. So they wanted more space. They could live further away from home. Uh, We got people asking, you know, what's the Wi-Fi like if I'm going to move out to Carlton Place or Elmont or Prior or, you know, and have an acre or two or maybe be on a lake? So people have realized that they can live in a variety of different places and and, uh, and that has uh, given them a little bit more elbow room. And if they have to go into the office, uh, you know, they're, they're prepared to do that commute. So it has adjusted the way, you know, people have lived. Um, and I think that that has been healthy to, uh, you know, to spread people out a little bit. And I think that that is probably, uh, you know, going to continue. I mean, a lot of people are going to head back to the office, uh, but maybe not even full time. You know, there's still going to be a work from home strategy for sure. Um, And, uh, you know, gyms and, you know, people want a little bit more elbow room. So I think that those changes are probably semi-permanent for sure.
0: Uh, it wasn't that long ago and it was all condo, 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 especially here in southern Ontario. They were popping up like mushrooms. Uh, considering what you're saying here, David, how does this change the development discussion? Uh, less attractive are condos now, more, uh, attra- high-rise condos, let's say, and, and more attractive are homes with some space.
5: Well, I think that that um, space has always been, uh, you know, an important thing. But I think that condos are are, are always uh, in style for sure. I mean, I know that in in Ottawa, I speak about knowledgeable about that. People are heading back to school, so um, you know the you know we have two universities in downtown Ottawa, and so that's uh, that's an important element. As students uh, come back, you know, it was a little quieter in condos last year, but uh, that is picking up again. And people still want to, you know, there's some people that still want to be able to walk to their office. You know, there's what a third of the, a third of the houses in in Canada are single person households. So um, I think that, you know, there's still a, a, a high demand for condos for that reason, because people need, you know, smaller space. Um, so it's, it, you know, there's still um, lots of people want all kinds of different product. And, you know, with the return to school and, uh, and, you know, maybe office space downtown, uh, you know, people are, are, are still interested in coming back for sure.
0: Will this change how we develop neighborhoods now? Um, moving forward, uh, how do you design, how do you create uh, new neighborhoods, new residents, new what have you, uh, considering what we've been through?
5: yeah really interesting, right? I mean, I think that you know what we're what we're looking at here is is that and here's different elements of the of the plans about uh, you know uh, building a variety of different housing, and uh, that may uh, uh, create desire for increased density. And you know and there's some uh, so I think that there's gonna be um, some stress uh, in uh, some circumstances where uh, dense you where know, where zoning's gonna need to be changed in order to allow that which I think will ultimately be good for, uh, for us, uh, you know, if people are going to be living, you know, downtown, then shorten their commute uh, to where they need to be. Um, so I think it's going ch- there's going to be um, an effort uh, probably to figure out, you know, how, how do we accommodate uh, all uh, needs and all uh, economic needs and sizes um, uh, so that people don't have to buy, you know, 100 miles from, uh, from where they want to work.
0: Uh, do you think housing will continue to be in the forefront of this election as we get into uh, the final stages of it, and then the vote on September twentieth?
5: Yeah, I'm, bo- I'm born and raised in Ottawa, and I've been around long enough to know that you know you never know what's going to come around the corner and what's going to be um, what's going to be the next item that people are going to care about. But I think that housing affordability. It's not a new issue that just popped up in the last couple of weeks. This is a forefront issue. So we, we certainly think that it's going to be important in people's minds. Um, and I hope that the conversation continues and people don't lose sight of it um, either uh, in the next three weeks or uh, or after the election is over. Uh, we certainly hope that it's a conversation and meaningful solutions are are, uh, are addressed and uh, we're optimistic that uh, that it will be.
0: David Oichel with us, president of the Ontario Real Estate Association. All four political major political parties have uh, presented uh, housing uh, policies uh, already in the election. David, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: Okay, anytime. Look forward to coming back and chatting with you.